In this episode of 92Y Talks, Jonathan Safran Foyer and Rabi Alamedine read from and discuss their new works, Here I Am and The Angel of History. They are introduced by Rich Cohen and Jonathan Lee. It was recorded on October 20th, 2016, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Hello, everyone. Um, the first book that I read by Rabi Alamedine was called The Hakawati. And the novel began with the following words. Listen, allow me to be your God. Let me take you on a journey beyond imagining. Let me tell you a story. I knew then deep in my bones in that same unlearned way you know whether you are sleepy or sad that I was in the hands of a confident writer and for a change, one who had every good reason to be confident. The Hakawati was, I think, a masterpiece. If I could take just one book to a desert island, well, I'd probably politely turn down the trip. But as a fallback, a good choice would be the Hakawati, so richly does it reward rereading. After that first encounter with Rabi Alamedine's fiction, I allowed him to tell me all sorts of stories. In his novels, Kool-Aids and I the Divine, in The Perv, his collection of short fictions, and then two years ago in An Unnecessary Woman, his masterly rendering of a life lived through the pages of other people's books. The novel's freshness and honesty justly caught the eye of prize committees. It was the winner of the California Book Award and a finalist, I believe, for the National Book Award and the National Book Critics Circle Award. It also appeared on far too many best of lists to list here without making everyone involved blush. In 2014, when I was working as an editor at the literary journal Guernica, I had the chance for the first time to take my fandom beyond the pages of Rabi's books. I commissioned an interview with him. I still hadn't met him personally, and it's not always, as we know, a great idea to meet the authors of work that you love. By the way, it's, not, it's also not a great idea sometimes to meet the authors of work that you don't love, but... <laughs> so I, I asked someone else, Dwyer Murphy, to interview him, and I relished reading the interview text that I received over email on February 27th of that year. It spoke of a generous artist who, instead of preaching simple answers or messages, was content to keep asking questions, both in his work and in person. The first line of the interview that caught my eye was Rabi saying as follows, I'm Lebanese, but not that much. American, but not that much. Gay, but not that much. The only thing I'm sure of, really, is that I'm under five feet seven. <laughs> I look forward to fact-checking che Rabi's height when he steps on stage in a moment. But for now, to his line of self-analysis, I would add only one further guarantee, that his new book, The Angel of History, which you're about to hear all about, is proof, if any proof were needed, that he's one of the very best novelists alive. The great writers of any time can make us laugh, of course, within moments of making us want to weep. Some writers get an effect somewhere proximate to that through the cheer charm of their sentences. But I think Robbie's writing can, possesses something deeper. It has charisma. Seldom have I read a book that so perfectly permits the funny to bleed into the desperately sad, 
the small details of a life into questions of identity and morality and mortality and justice. You will hear when he reads that he mixes the satanic with the soothing, the political with the personal, and shows in the end that distinctions between such things do not really exist, that they are all parts of the rich muddle of our humanity. Ladies and gentlemen, as a true admirer of his work and of the work that 92nd Street Y has been doing in New York for 140 years, it's my great pleasure to introduce, without further ado, Rabi Alamedine. Every time something like this happens, I always think they're talking about someone else. Because <laughs> I really have no idea who they're talking about. Uh, but uh, first, thank you for coming. It's always a shock that people show up. <laughs> uh, and I would like to say that uh, I am no longer gay. I am no longer Lebanese, and I am no longer an American. I have decided to create a new sexual and political identity. I am grumpy. I uh, want a grumpy parade where all us grumpies walk in the same general direction, but not together. I, I want a grumpy center where we have readings that we heckle, uh, art that we hate. I'm sure there are many people here who'd like to join this. Okay, uh, I'm about to read from the Angel of History. Uh, and Jonathan said, I am confident. I have to say, I am never confident. I will read two uh, sections. Uh, the only thing you have to know is that the narrator is talking to his lover who has been dead for 20 years. And I may have to change glasses. This is called Restless Heart. The beating of your heart kept me awake one night. For months after you died, I saw you everywhere, heard your voice, sonorous, throaty, reverberating in my ear. I wasn't crazy. I knew you were dead. I buried you, after all. I mean, I burned you, cremated you. But I kept seeing you, doing dishes in the kitchen with your back to me. I'd call you as you stacked each plate in our plastic dish rack. But you didn't look back. And then you were gone in a flash, and I was left with nothing, not even an after image. I didn't mistake you for anybody. I never saw you in a crowd thinking someone else was you. No, it was never like that. I saw you in the hallway, in our hallway, under the Turkish lamp you brought back from Istanbul when you were there so long ago. Remember the trouble they gave you at, at customs for a $20 lamp? And when you emerged from the swinging doors, you were furious. I kept telling you to calm down, but you wouldn't. You went on and on because you were angry and you were an American and you could ruffle feathers at airports. <laughs> while I was alive, I loved you while you were alive and I loved you still, but I forgot for a while. Forgive me. 
I couldn't obsess you, I couldn't obsess about you all the time. So you disappeared as if I'd bleached my memory. But you came back, you know, like a fungal infection. <laughs> Remember, Thrush, the white stains that attacked your innocent tongue looked like snowy down on old strawberries. We couldn't get rid of it, and you hated it, and I hated it, and you wanted it over. When, to make you feel better, I joked that the furry fungus matched your white lab coat, you turned up aplectic, wanted to strangle me. I still regret that. I thought it was funny at the time. You've been gone for decades. You hid deep in my lakes. Why now? Why infect my dreams now? What flood is this? Once, as I was buying groceries in a store where a young third-worlder mopped the floor back and forth, back and forth, around a yellow sign that announced Piso Mojado, you jumped the levee of my memory. Proust had his Madeleine, but bleach was all our stock, all ours. The tomatoes didn't look too good, and I just went home. I'd been a coward. I was scared. Do notice I said scared and not frightened. You taught me the difference. You said children get scared. Men might feel afraid, might even feel terror, but men never get scared. I'd been so lonely since you died. You left me roofless in a downpour. You gripped the bed rail when you took your final breath, and I had to pry open your fingers one by one to free you. It took 17 minutes because my hands were shaking so much. Even in death, you were stronger than I, and more obstinate. The mortician told me it took forever to burn you. Thrice, he had to put you in the incinerator. You refused to turn to ash. You sincerely believed that the distance between you and me would one day disappear. You told me I was not my mother and you were not my father, but how could we not be? How could we not be? The stones over her cenotaph still felt so very happy. You held out your arms and said, join me, but I couldn't. And you said, let me love you, and I couldn't because you wanted to be so close. You held out the fireman's net and said, jump, and I couldn't. I felt the fall was much too great. I chose to go back into the fire. You said, I like it when you doze on my chest, but I said, the hair on your chest irritates my cheeks and makes it difficult to sleep. I could hardly bear the beauty of you. You were gone for so long, and I moved along, and everyone told me I was alive, but that night, in my bed, each time my ear touched the single pillow, I heard your heartbeat once more, once more, once more, once more. My heart is restless until it rests in thee. So that's one section. No, no, no. And I'm blushing. Uh, no, see, the big decision is whether I change my glasses or not. <clears throat> this is called The Whorehouse. And uh, every time I read it, I've read it aloud a couple of times, it comes out as The Warehouse, which apparently is the same thing. High above the great altitude of Densanao, 
you could hardly breathe. But I found it more open than the open spaces of the rest of the country. A city boy I was, like most faggots before me. Even as a child, I knew I did not fit in bucolic Yemen, the mountains or plains, its deserts or beaches. Sana'a, on the other hand, might have been charmingly beautiful with its historic houses sitting on, on Siena tiers, but it was a city, an unpretender, bitter and onerous, oppressive. So, of course, it felt more natural to me. It was old as well as ancient. The imamate had kept modernity at bay for generations. We did not stay long, but I believe I would have survived there, could have. We arrived in a rickety van covered in dust and sand and soot, whose driver, a weather-wrinkled young man sporting a proud mustache dyed with henna, was forced to jam a screwdriver between the glass and its rubber molding to keep the window ajar. We disembarked in the city with few possessions, the clothes on our back, a most colorful satchel, and my mother's well-functioning vagina. A question here, a whisper there, a lowering of shy eyes, a gasp of surprise, one of delight, a nod in a general direction, a pointed finger, and within minutes of setting our tattered slippers on the city's soil, she was knocking on a pinkish-brown door. I remember every detail of that door. With rows of pomegranates carved into hardwood, its central jam studded with tarnished bronze pins that needed a good rub with lemon and coarse sea salt to regain their luster. A knocker through which you could hang a dish towel. I remember every aspect of the house and its eccentric decor. The windows framed by white arches, the indoor fresh fountain, the cupolas above the door, uh, corridor, all inlaid with small black stones, held together with a cement made from white lime. I don't remember much about its inhabitants, a number of Egyptians, army men, engineers, politicians and advisors, evangelists in their recent beliefs, new converts to socialism, pan-Arabism, and buying sex on the cheap. Of course, what, have, what may have been a tiny amount of money to the men was abundance to my mother. She offered her charms earnestly and diligently. And luckily for us, another woman visiting the house took a quick fancy to her and to me. Auntie Badia did not, care, did not much care for Sanha or anything it had to offer. For a militant Kyrene, every other city paled. And the Yemeni capital felt to her like nothing more than an oversized hamlet. She did not wish to spend a second more than she had to outside of her beloved Cairo. She had come to work with two other women, and she intended to leave Sana'a, the troops, and the two women behind as soon as she made enough money. Three weeks after we arrived, three weeks after my mother had rediscovered her popularity, Auntie Badia offered her the opportunity of a lifetime. Come with me to Cairo, work in our house, become acclaimed by real gentlemen for a change, and you don't have to veil your face outdoors. You can wear whatever you wish, it is most modern. In Cairo, God wipes the tears of, of his children's faces. We hardly had time to unpack the one colorful satchel before we were crossing the Red Sea in a rickety boat covered in dust and salt and engine soot. Off to the great modern city we went, to Antibadia's house. Faulkner, 
once said that the best job ever offered to him was in a brothel. That, that it was the best milieu for an artist to work in. Baudelaire agreed, of course. And I learned about poetry in the whorehouse. My mother, with me in tow, was welcomed probably for the first time in her life. Being pretty, kind, generous, she was well-liked by both the establishment and its customers. Being delusional, slightly unhinged, and an indiscreet romantic, she felt right in with the rest of my aunties. She finally found a home. If you ask me, those were the happiest days of my life. We lived in a house with other women who came in all colors and culture, and who came in all colors and cultures, and like the brothel's furniture, came in all shapes and sizes. My lovely aunties, short and tall aunties, white and black, voluptuous and boyish, Egyptian, Ethiopian, Uzbek, Indian, Yemeni. Most of them, my mother included, sat around in a daze under the hanging lamps, spent half their time in hope and half in waiting, waiting for a miracle that never visited, waiting for something or someone to fly them out of their adopted life. For my mother, that someone was my father. Someday, her emir would come. And he didn't, of course. And she forever forgave him, or I think she did. Auntie Badia, on the other hand, didn't wait for a miracle. She loved her life, and she loved me. Older than my mother, though not by much, she took me under her wing, more precisely under her skirt. No, not sexual, Doc. I was much too young, and she didn't have that much sex in any case. That's why she had time to look after me. She was dark, darker than me, and overweight, which at one point was popular with clients, primarily Egyptians and other Arabs. But as Russians and Europeans began to frequent the house, she was less desired. She lay, belong, she lay beyond their longings. Though she went through the prescribed motions every evening, it was merely gesture, a performance for performance's sake. The motions, including painting her face while the men were already in the room, she was the only one who did that. About one hour after evening prayers, she descended the unbanistered stairs into the salon, splayed herself on a duchesse brise whose bright canary yellow color clashed with every single thing in the room except for the caged canary that rarely sang if there were more than two people around. Once completely comfortable, her hair proportionally distributed around the unusual chaise long, a Rubenesque odalisque, Auntie Badia languidly applied her makeup, none of which were store-bought. All nature, organic even, crushed fruits and berries. Crushed fruits and berries were the lipstick. In a small wooden bowl, she makes galena and other powders for the kahal before her rapt audience, outlined her eyes with a pencil-shaped stick of ivory. European men, Eastern and Western, weren't the only one dazzled by the theaters. Americans soon joined them. And I, too, stood mouth open, eyes wide, nostrils flaring, enraptured by the beauty, and ignored by the men. I mentioned your countrymen, Doc, not to make you feel terrible, but for whatever reason, they visited us in disproportionately large numbers. And truly, pleasing them became the main thrust of our establishment. 
they always overpaid, and because of their lumpen tastes, they weren't difficult to please. Your people and the Europeans loved watching Antibadia, were mightily entertained, made sure to arrive early whenever they were bringing a newbie so he could witness her great art. But when it came time, when it came time to withdraw into the private rooms, they directed their buzzed eyes. They chose to fuck my mother. They sure did. She was younger, prettier, drank Pepsi and 7-Up, blushed easily, covered her mouth when giggling, and had just the right touch of non-threatening exoticness, just the tad. Since my mother was busy most of the time, Auntie Badia took care of me. You would think that at some point, a younger model would have replaced her, someone who would have been able to provide the house with a steadier and plumper income. But you'd be wrong. Irreplaceable she was. Auntie Badia spoke passable pimp in a few languages, including English. Idiosyncratic she was. Those American men loved being around her, found her amusing, if not fuckable. An outstanding cook, whenever she approached a sto stove, God's stomach would begin to rumble. That was not all. She had a wonderful sense of humor, a lightness of heart, an infectious, an infectious love of a good joke that I've never seen replicated anywhere in the Western Hemisphere. Soon after Antibadia finished painting her lady face, she'd joke with the customers, ruckus and raillery and merriment in broken English. God, God the undecided into choosing the right girl for his next orgasm, and sit me on her lap, well, on her thigh, since she was usually king. Blow on my face, my sweet Ya'ub. The powder has to dry. Sing for me, she'd say. Recite Abu Nuwas. I love his poetry, but not as much as I love you. When the audience thinned out, she carried me to the kitchen, fed me, made me read aloud to her while I stuffed my mouth with her cooking. Poetry, light, pural rhymes. Quite more adult as I grew up, but always rhymes. Arabic poetry always rhymed. She put me in her bed, and I slept long before my, money, my mother finished satisfying for the night. Auntie Badia usually woke up to find me inventing the most elaborate games while sitting on the floor outside my mother's door, serving tea to Sultan Ahmad, who entertained King George of Britannica, the latter so enthralled by my tea-serving prowess that he wished to steal me from my master while I demurred and blushed and covered my mouth and giggled. After my fairly ritualized morning ablutions, brushed my teeth, washed my face under my arms, I was forced to read and write in the kitchen while Antibadia sang, hovered around pots heating atop the wood stove like a mother hen with her chicks. Old Egyptian recipes she cooked, flavored with old, old Egyptian folk songs. She even sang Yemeni folk songs that she learned during her short stay. Lovely songs, not like Ofra Haza. Remember her? The Israeli singer used to like to dance to, whom I couldn't stand, and you insisted she was singing Yemeni songs that she heard while growing up in Tel Aviv, because that's what the album cover said in clear lettering. Yet I hadn't heard any of these songs before, and you accused me of being insensitive and racist even. And you made me listen to her over and over and over, so I couldn't get the songs out of my head, even though I hated her them and I hated her, until, until she died of AIDS, just like all of us. She was just like us, and I felt so guilty for hating her, 
and I forgave her sins, but I couldn't forgive mine. Ofra's songs did not compare with those, did not compare well with those of Auntie Badia. Couldn't measure up. Because Auntie's voice was gravelly, like sea pebbles on the beach, ideal for those old melodies. Auntie Badia's sing-song melodies bore me across the grooves of childhood. I sat at the kitchen table with my book or papers, waiting. On the wall, an old-fashioned ticking clock, the only visible one since the brothel had Vegas rules. No customer should be able to see the time. I waited. Time aged at a Chelonian pace when I was a child. I stared at the black hands of the clock, willing them to move to no avail. I would count to agonizing infinity and back and look up and barely a minute had passed. I remember the clock, round, the size of a salad dish, Arabic numbers on a subdued light gray and oyster-colored background. I remember the pages in front of me, writing the alphabet slowly, the aleph, standing line, trying to make it fit within the predetermined boundaries, and glancing up at the, cl at the clock once more and again, understanding that my mother had not woken up. My aunties would stare awake one by one, come down for the late lunch, and my mother would always be the last, always the last. She would be happy to see me, ruffle my most unruffable hair, but she wasn't a day person, and it would take her a few hours to regain full cheerfulness. Her jalabiya was puce. I still see it so clearly, dog, so clearly. Puce is the French word for flea. It's the color of bloodstains, and was Marie Antoinette's favorite because if you squashed a flea on it, you couldn't see the stain. But even though the whorehouse certainly had its share of fleas, I doubt my mother ever considered the connection. She rarely considered much else than what was directly in front of her, which was where I tried to be. I buzzed around her like a hummingbird around its zinnia. Look at me, look at me. Her head was usually down. Hair covered her face. She would grunt, hum, uh-huh, and yes to everything I said until she stabbed my heart with and enough now, or can't you see I'm tired? And I would slouch and begin my second phase of waiting, waiting until she recovered and bloomed. Slowly, she perked up and began to smile. And as soon as she was able to pay me some mind, the muezzin's call would echo from the masjid four streets away. Time for evening prayers. The only ones that the entire house observed. The prayer rugs unrolled, Antibadia owned the most intricate and my favorite, fine wool woven to depict a white mosque, its bloom in a red topped by a del delicate golden crescent. My mother's barely a step up from a straw mat. The women all lined up facing toward Mecca, their foreheads and noses pressed the rugs thrice, while I remained still behind the murmuring hive so as to not distract their humming hearts, promising devotion. I waited impatiently for the ritual to finish, hoping for a few seconds of attention, since the end of prayer was the time to get ready for work and the cycle. The eternal return. The men returned, my aunties preened, evening in full bloom. Auntie Badia descended the stairs, the laughter, the merriment. My mother left with the man, other couples paired up in rooms, and Auntie Badia showered me with adoration. What poem shall you recite for me this evening, she would ask. 
take care of your auntie Badia, who loves you most of all. She loved me and she showed it. I loved her right back, but not enough, not enough. Because even then, when the Austrian or Australian finished fucking my mother, when the Englishman had left a deposit in one illicit container or another, when the Russian returned to the lounge to wait for friends, to settle up his bills or gather his wits, then the American noticed me. I was there with Auntie Badia. Such a cute boy, the German, the Swede would say, so adorable. The man looked slightly less kempt than when he walked in, more sated. He exuded confidence, and I fucked your mother from every pore. He smiled at me, a smile stronger than destiny. Such a cute kid, such a sweet boy. I loved Auntie Badia. I loved my mother, but I worshipped the man. I made him my religion. Thank you. Um, so I'm supposed to stand up here and talk a little bit about Jonathan Safran Foer and what he's like and what I think of him as a person and a friend and all that. But the truth is we don't really know each other that well. If I'd been more rigorous about this assignment and had a little more time, and of course there's the Lyme disease to think of, I'd probably have taken, taken him on a whitewater rafting trip to Colorado. And we'd have had some hair-raising adventures and some serious talks around the campfire after the guide had passed out from all that beer. But like I said, there was not enough time. But what I do know and can say something about is Jonathan's new book, Here I Am. I got a galley this summer and consumed it in one big gulp, like at 7-Eleven. The book put me in a kind of fever dream that really became my summer, at a time when everything is cut up into smaller and smaller tranches, about smaller and smaller things for smaller and smaller audiences. My father says we know more and more about less and less, and soon we'll know everything about nothing. Here was a book that finally went after the big, big thing, which to quote an old title is the way we live now. It's filled with so many people I feel like I know, the good and the bad, that it's eerie. Everything is in it. The children who grow up like pods and wait not so patiently to take our place. The jobs, that the endless work on that TV show, the dilemmas and freakouts, and the feeling that something is not quite right, and the escape fantasies, and the video games, which are more than video games, and the guy on the call-in helpline who insists he's not in India. That exact guy. It was like looking through a window into a strange house that is also your house. As a great writer once said about a different great book, it spoke to the nature of my condition. And it's funny as hell, a fact not noted often enough. Yes, the book is moving and it's beautiful and it makes you feel the passing of time, but it's also a really, really funny book. I was especially taken by the crisis at the center of the book, the near destruction of Israel. It's something that's almost always on my mind. 
Could it happen? And what would it mean? Jonathan's depiction upset me and put me in a funk because yes, it felt symbolic and it felt metaphorical, but also because it felt exactly right. It's like the wise man tells the newbie in the prison movie, this is how this shit will go down. It was terrifying, not because the world came to a stop and turned and worried and cared, but because for almost everyone, including Jews, it went on just as before. What you have here in these pages is a picture of the comfortable life being lived by the Jews of Babylon as the second temple is destroyed. You think it will not affect you, but your life is entwined. You think your life will end, but your life goes on. And that is the problem. How do you live when you are no longer young and you are not yet old and Israel is no longer gold in my ear and life just goes on and on? It's with great pleasure that I introduce Jonathan Safran Foer. Thank you. I've read I'm at the 92nd Street Y maybe three or four times in my life, and it's always a really extreme honor to be here. I've come to many, many more readings here than I have given, and um, it, when um, in advance of this book coming out, my um, editor said, are there any places that you would like to read that you've liked to read in the past? You had positive experiences anywhere. We could maybe try to make that work. And the 92nd Street Y was the very first to come to mind. So I'm uh, very happy to be here. Uh, so I'm going to read from two different sections. They're quite different. Um, and not that much background is necessary for either. The, the story, the book is about a family that lives in Washington, D.C. in the contemporary moment. Block family, and there are two crises in the book. One is domestic, which is a discovered cell phone, which reveals an affair. And the second is um, an earthquake in the Middle East, which precipitates a war that becomes so extreme that the Prime Minister of Israel asks all Jews between the ages of 15 and 55 to come and fight. So the first passage I'm going to read has to do with neither crisis, but a different kind of crisis, which is a bar mitzvah. The oldest... The oldest, um, this must be a very Jewish audience. <laughs> the, um, I, I did a reading in, what was it, Manchester, Manchester, England, on Yom Kippur, I'm afraid to say. I know. And uh, none of the jokes worked, not a single joke. <laughs> there are plenty of Jews there. They were just self-conscious and didn't want to laugh. In fact, they were probably all Jews there. Um, okay, so the first... Uh, passage has to do with bar mitzvah of the eldest son, Sam. Jacob, his middle son, Max. Jacob is 42 years old. He's an aspiring writer, though it's not exactly clear what he ever aspired to, but he now works on a TV show that's enormously popular that he doesn't care about very much, and he is constantly measuring his own disappointment. Um, his middle son, Max, who's 10, and his father, Irv, who is a political blogger. He's kind of a caricature. He's a bit xenophobic. He is in every single situation, in all cases, in all ways, unquestioningly pro-Jew. And um, this part of the Block family has gone to National Airport, Reagan National, which they refuse to call Reagan National, but National Airport, to pick up the Israeli cousins who are arriving into town for this bar mitzvah. 
Um, the Israeli cousin that's in this scene is named Tamir. He's about Jacob's age. And he's kind of a mirror of Jacob. He's also about 42, but he's quite different. He is Israeli, and he's kind of muscular, kind of hairy, kind of broad. Uh, he has no internal self-censoring mechanism. <laughs> he doesn't take any shit from anybody. Um, Jacob is a little bit neurotic, a little bit overthinking, hypervigilant, um, you know, not... not um, radically unlike the person describing him right now. <laughs> so Jacob is, and they envy each other and they resent each other. Jacob has gone to the men's room as they're on their way out of the airport. A man his father's age was urinating beside him. His pee came out in bursts as if from a lawn sprinkler and to Jacob's unaccredited ear, it sounded like a symptom. When the man let out a small grunt, Jacob reflexively glanced over and they exchanged the briefest of smiles before remembering where they were. <laughs> a place where exactly one extremely brief moment of acknowledgement was tolerable. Jacob had the strong sensation that he knew this person. He often felt that at urinals, but this time he was sure, as he always was. Where had he seen that face before? Was it a teacher of his from grade school, or one of the boys' teachers, or maybe one of his father's friends? He returned to thoughts of babbling brooks and the slow death of a lower back whose demise, like so much else, he never considered until forced, and then it hit him. Spielberg. Once the thought appeared, there was no doubting it. Of course it was him. Jacob was standing, his penis exposed, next to Steven Spielberg, whose penis was exposed. What were the odds? Jacob had grown up, as had every Jew in the last quarter of the 20th century, under Spielberg's wing, or rather in the shadow of his wing. He'd seen E.T. three times in its opening weekend, all at the Uptown Theater, each time through his fingers as the bike chase reached a climax so delicious it was literally unbearable. He'd seen, he had seen Indiana Jones, and the next one, and the next one. He tried to sit through always. Nobody's perfect. Not until he makes Schindler's List at which point he is not even he anymore, but representative of them. Them? The murdered millions. Well, no, Jacob thought, representative of us, the unmurdered. But Schindler wasn't for us, it was for them. Not the murdered, obviously, they can't watch movies. It was for all of them who weren't us, the Goyim. Because with Spielberg, into whose bank account the general public was compelled to make annual deposits, we finally had a way to force them to look at our absence, to rub their noses in the German shepherd's shit. And God was he loved. Jacob found the movie schmaltzy, overblown, and flirting with kitsch. But he had been profoundly moved. Irv, the father, denounced the choice to tell an uplifting Holocaust story, to give, for all intents and purposes, a statistically negligible happy ending generated by that statistically negligible of species, the good German. But even Irv had been moved to his limits. Isaac, who's the grandfather and patriarch of the family, couldn't have been more moved. You see? You see what was done to us, to my parents, to my brothers, to me? You see? Everyone was moved, and everyone was persuaded that being moved was the ultimate aesthetic, intellectual, and ethical experience. Jacob was going to have to cop a look at Spielberg's penis. The only question was on what pretense. 
Every annual physical with Dr. Schlesinger, excuse me, every annual physical ended with Dr. Schlesinger kneeling in front of Jacob, cupping his balls, and asking him to turn his head and cough. That experience seemed to be universal and universally inexplicable among men, but coughing and turning one's head had something to do with genitals. The logic wasn't airtight, but it felt right. <laughs> Jacob coughed and snuck a peek. The size didn't really make an impression. Spielberg was no longer shorter, wider, or narrower than most doughy Jewish grandfathers. Neither was he particularly bananaed, pendular, reticulated, light bulbish, reptilian, laminar, mushroomed, varicose, hook nosed, or cockeyed. I have to, I always, when I read that line, I have to stop and thank my little brother who supplied many of those adjectives. <laughs> I was writing the book, I remember exactly where I was, in my dining room, in a red chair, I was typing this scene, I got to that sentence, or the sentence before it, I suppose, and I texted my little brother, I said, listen, I really need some adjectives to describe Steven Spielberg's penis. <laughs> without any context. I didn't say I'm writing a novel and there's a scene in which, and I'm, sh I'm sure I hit send before the responses started to come, but it was only by a millisecond. And they, just one after another, he started giving these to me. And laminar is a word I never bothered to look up. I still don't know what it means. <laughs> what was notable, okay, so he wasn't any of these things. What was notable was what wasn't missing. His penis was uncircumcised. Now, Jacob had had precious little exposure to the visual atrocity that is an intact penis. <laughs> that line didn't work in Manchester on Yom Kippur. <laughs> uh, and so, wouldn't bet his life on what he saw. And the stakes felt that high. But he knew enough to know that he had to look again. But though urinal etiquette forgives a greeting and the cough might have been a passable alibi for the glance, there was simply no way to return to the scene without propositioning sex. And even in a world in which Spielberg hadn't made AI, that wasn't gonna happen. <laughs> there were four options. One, he'd misidentified him as Steven Spielberg and misidentified his penis as being uncircumcised. Two, he'd misidentified him as Steven Spielberg and correctly identified his penis as being uncircumcised. Three, it was Steven Spielberg, but he'd misidentified his penis as being uncircumcised because obviously Steven Spielberg was circumcised. Or four, Steven Spielberg wasn't circumcised. If he were a betting man, he'd have pushed his mountain of chips onto four. Jacob flushed his face and the urinal, washed too quickly to accomplish anything, and then scrambled back out to the others. You are never going to believe who I just peed beside. Jesus, Dad. Close. <laughs> Spielberg. Who's that? Tamir asked. Tamir the Israeli. You're serious? What? Spielberg. Steven Spielberg. Never heard of him. <laughs> Give me a break, Jacob said, unsure as ever to what extent Tamir was performing. Whatever else could be said about him, Tamir was smart, worldly, and restless. But whatever else could be said about him, he was foolish, solipsistic, and self-satisfied. If he had a sense of humor, it was drier than cornstarch, which enabled him to practice a kind of psycholo psychological acupuncture on Jacob. Did a needle just enter me? Does it hurt? Is this complete bullshit? He couldn't possibly be serious about not having heard of Spielberg. Impossible, and yet entirely possible. Oh, that's heavy, Irv said. 
And the heaviest part, Jacob leaned in and whispered, he's not circumcised. (laughs) Max threw his hands into the air. What did you kiss his wiener in a bathroom stall? (laughs) Who is this Spielberg? Tamir asked. We were at urinals, Max. No, I'm sorry, this just can't be right, Irv said. I know, Jacob said, but I saw it with my own eyes. Why were your own eyes checking out another man's penis, Max asked. Because he's Steven Spielberg, Jacob said. Why won't someone tell me who this person is, Tamir said. Because I don't believe that you don't know who he is. Why would I pretend, Tamir asked, entirely believably. Because it's your bizarre Israeli way of diminishing the achievements of American Jews. (laughs) And why would I want to do that? You'd have to tell me. Okay, Tamir said, calmly wiping the remnants of six packets of duck sauce from the corners of his mouth, whatever you say. He got up and headed in the direction of the condiments bar. You have to go back in and be sure, Irv said. You have to introduce yourself. You will do no such thing, Max said, exactly as his mother would have. Irv closed his eyes and said, my core has been shaken. I know. I mean, what are we to believe? I know. All the while, we thought his Holocaust schlock was compensating for the Holocaust. (laughs) Now it's schlock, Jacob said. Oh, it was always schlock, Irv said, but it was our schlock. Now, I have to wonder. Well, it's not as if he is in Jewett, but Jacob couldn't finish the sentence, or he didn't need to. As soon as the fragment of the possibility entered the world, there was no room for anything else. I need to sit down, Irv said. You are sitting down, Max told him. I need to sit on the floor. Don't, Jacob said, it's filthy. Everything is now filthy, Irv said. In silence, they watched dozens of people balancing overstuffed trays, weave and dodge and never touch. Max whispered something incomprehensible to no one. Irv rested his head in his hands and said, if God had wanted us to be uncircumcised, he wouldn't have invented smegma. (laughs) what what Jacob asked I said if God had wanted no no I was talking to Max I didn't say anything Max said what nothing Irv said Jaws is such a terrible movie (laughs) and then Tamir came back they'd been too preoccupied by their speculations to notice how long he'd been gone so here's the deal he said what deal he has problems with urinary retention He? Steve. (laughs) Irv clapped his cheeks and squealed like it was his first visit to the American Girl flagship store. (laughs) Um, And now I'll read a part from a little later in the book. (laughs) I can't tell you how often people ask me, is is Steven Spielberg really uncircumcised? (laughs) Say, how the hell should I know? Um, are you? Okay. So this is a very, very different kind of passage now. Very different. So most of the book is actually about this marriage and um, between Jacob and Julia and the sort of distance that they've traveled from where they began, um, from who they wanted to be, who they thought they would be, who they tried to be, to who they became and why that process happened, despite them being good people and loving people, people in love with each other, 
thoughtful people. Um, this, as I said, happens at the end of the book, and it's at Julia's second wedding. So it sounds like I'm spoiling a lot when I say that, but it's clear from the beginning that they get divorced. I didn't, the suspense is not, was, was not, um, was something that I actually tried to drain out of the book um, because it's just not as rich as investing yourself in the way that something happens rather than whether or not it will happen. And so this is narrated in the first person by Jacob. Um, this is, let's say, seven years after the action of the book. It's a, it's a flash forward. A clause near the end of our legal divorce agreement stated that should either of us have more children, the children we had together would be treated no less favorably financially, either in life or in our wills. Despite all of the longer thorns, and there really were many, this one dug into Julia. But rather than acknowledge what at the time I assumed was the source of her distress, that because of our ages having more children was realistic only for me, she attached herself to the issue that wasn't even there. I would never in a million years remarry, she told the mediator. Well, this doesn't concern remarriage, but rather having more children. If I were to have more children, which I will not, it would be in the context of a marriage, which is not going to happen. Life is long, he said. Yeah, and the universe is even bigger, but we don't seem to be getting a lot of visits from intelligent life. And it's not long, she went on. If life were long, I wouldn't be halfway through it. We aren't halfway through life, I said. You aren't, because you're a man. Well, women live longer than men. And she said, only technically. As ever, the mediator wouldn't take the bait. He cleared his throat as if swinging a machete to clear a path through our overgrown history. And he said, this clause, which I should say is entirely standard for agreements like yours, won't affect you in the event that you don't have any more children. It merely protects you and your children if Jacob does. Well, I don't want it in there, she said. Can we move on to something genuinely contentious, I suggested. No, she said, I don't want it in there. Even if that means forfeiting your legal protection, the mediator asked. I trust Jacob not to treat other children more favorably than ours. Life is long, I said, winking at the mediator without moving an eyelid. Is that some kind of joke, she asked. Yeah, obviously. The mediator cleared his throat again and drew a line through the clause. Julia wouldn't let it go, not even after we'd removed what wasn't there to begin with. In the middle of a discussion of something entirely unrelated, like how to handle Thanksgiving or Halloween or birthdays, whether it was necessary to legally forbid the presence of a Christmas tree in either's home, she might say, you know, divorce gets an unfair rap. It was marriage that did this. Such out-of-context statements became part of the routine, at once impossible to anticipate and unsurprising. The mediator showed an almost autistic patience for her teretic eruptions. <laughs> Until one afternoon, when splitting the hairs of medical decision-making in the event that one parent couldn't be reached, she said, I will literally die before I remarry. And without clearing his throat or missing a beat, he asked, do you want me to put in some language legally codifying that? <laughs> she started dating Daniel about three years after the divorce. To my knowledge, which was greatly limited by the kindness of kids who were trying to protect me, she didn't date very much before him. She seemed to relish the quiet and aloneness just as she'd always said and I'd never believed she would. 
Her architecture practice flowered. Two of her houses were built, one in Bethesda, one on the shore. And she got a commission to convert a grand DuPont Circle mansion into a museum showcasing the contemporary art collection of a local supermarket oligarch. Benji, who's the youngest son. Benji, who is no less kind than his brothers, but far less psychologically sophisticated, would increasingly mention Daniel, usually in the context of his abilities to edit movies on his laptop. That humble skill, which could be learned in an afternoon by someone willing to devote an afternoon to learning it, dramatically changed Benji's life. All the babyish movies that he'd been making on the waterproof digital camera I got him two Hanukkahs before were suddenly brought to life as fully realized adult films. I never suggested that the camera should stay at my house, and we never corrected his terminology. <laughs> Once, when I was dropping the boys back at Julia's after a particularly fun weekend of adventures I'd spent the previous two weeks planning, Benji grabbed at my leg and said, you have to go. I told him I did, but that he was going to have a great time and we'd see each other again in just a couple days. He turned to Julia and asked, is Daniel here? He's at a meeting, she said, but he'll be back any minute. Oh, another meeting? I want to make an adult film. <laughs> when my car rounded the corner, I saw a man about my age in clothing I might wear, sitting on a bench, no reading material, no purpose but to wait. I knew he went on the safari with them. I knew that he took Max to Wizards games. At some point he moved in. I don't know when. It was never presented to me as news. What does Daniel do? I asked the boys one night over Indian. We ate out a lot those days because it was hard for me to find the necessary time to grocery shop and cook, but more because I was obsessed with proving to them that we could still have fun. And eating out is fun until someone asks, where are we having dinner tonight? At which point it begins to feel depressing. <laughs> He's a scientist, Sam said. Sam is the eldest. But not a Nobel Prize winner or anything, Max said. Just a scientist. Well, what kind of scientist, I asked. Dunno, Sam and Max said at the same time, but no one said jinx. He's an astrophysicist, Benji said. And then, are you sad? <laughs> that he's an astrophysicist? Yeah. Julie asked a few times if I would go out for a drink with him and get to know him. She said it would mean a lot to her and to Daniel and that it could only be good for the boys. I told her, of course. I told her, yeah, it sounds great. And I believed myself as I said it, but it never happened. As we were saying goodbye after one of Max's teacher conferences, she told me that she and Daniel were going to get married. Does this mean you're dead? <laughs> Excuse me? You would sooner die than remarry. She laughed. No, not dead. Reincarnated. As yourself? As myself plus time. Myself plus time is my father, I said. She laughed again. I wondered if her laugh was spontaneous or generous. The nice thing about reincarnation, she said, is that life becomes a process rather than an event. Wait, you're serious? Ah, it's just stuff from yoga. <laughs> well, it flies in the face of stuff from science. Oh, you're constantly coming back, Jacob, just always as yourself. I didn't ask if the kids knew before me, and if so, for how long. She didn't tell me when it was going to happen or if I was going to be invited. I asked, does this mean I'm going to be treated less favorably? She laughed. I hugged her. I told her how happy I was for her. And then I went home and I ordered a video game system, as we'd always agreed we wouldn't. 
The wedding was three months later and I was invited and the kids did know before me, but only by a day. I told them not to mention the video game system to her and that was the actual sin. I can't help but compare it to our wedding. There are fewer people, but many of the same people. What did they think when they saw me? Those who had the guts to approach either pretended that there was nothing remotely awkward going on, that we were simply making small talk at the wedding of a mutual friend, or they put their hands on my shoulder. Julia and I were always really good at catching eyes, even after the divorce. We just had a way of finding each other. It was a joke between us. Like, how will I find you in the theater? Just by being you. But it didn't happen once, all afternoon. She was preoccupied, but she also must have been keeping track of where I was. I thought about slipping out at various points, but that was not to be done. The boys gave a charming speech together. I asked for red. Daniel spoke thoughtfully and lovingly. He thanked me for being there, for welcoming him. I nodded, I smiled. He moved on. I asked for red. I watched the horror from the table, watched the boys lift their mother in the chair. She was laughing so hard, and I was sure that with her up at that vantage, we would catch eyes, but we didn't. A salad was placed in front of me. Julia and Daniel went from table to table to make sure they said hello to every guest and for pictures. And I saw it approaching like the wave at a Nats game, and there was nothing to do but participate. I stood at the margin. The photographer said, say mocha, which I did not. He took it three times to be sure. Julia whispered to Daniel, gave him a kiss. He walked off and she took the seat beside me. I'm glad you came. Oh, of course. No, not of course. It was a choice you made. And I know it's not uncomplicated. I'm glad you wanted me here. Are you okay? She asked. Very much so, I said. Okay. I looked around the room. The doomed flowers, sweating water glasses, lipstick and purses left on chairs, guitars becoming detuned against speakers, knives that had attended thousands of unions. You want to hear something sad, I said. You know, I always thought that, that I was the happy one, or the happier one, I should say. I never really thought of myself as happy. You want to hear something even sadder, she said. I thought I was the unhappy one. I guess we were both wrong, I said. No, she said, we were both right but only in the context of our marriage. I put my hands on my knees as if to further ground myself. Were you there when my dad said that thing about how without context we'd all be monsters? I don't think so, she said, or I don't remember it. Well, our context made monsters of us. No, not monsters, she said. We were good, and we raised three amazing kids. Yeah, I said, and now you're happy, and I'm still me. Life is long, she said, trusting me to remember. The universe is bigger, I said, proving myself. Sea bass was placed in front of me. I picked up my fork so as to touch something. And I said, can I ask you a question? Sure. What do you tell people when they ask why we got divorced? Well, it's been a long time since anybody has. So what did you used to tell them? I guess that we realized we were just really good friends and good co-parents. Aren't those reasons not to get divorced? <laughs> she smiled and said, I had a hard time explaining it. Me too. I always sounded like I was hiding something or guilty about something or just fickle. Well, it's not really anyone else's business. What do you tell yourself? I asked her. It's been a long time since I asked myself. Well, what did you used to tell yourself? She picked up my spoon and said, we got divorced 
because that's what we did. It's not a tautology. While the waiters were bringing dinner to the final tables, the first tables were being brought dessert. And the boys, I asked, how did you explain it to them? Well, they never really asked me. Sometimes they'd trace the outline, but they'd never, ever enter. With you? Never once, I said. Isn't that odd? No, she said, a bride in her dress. It's not. I looked at my boys, being silly children on the dance floor, and I said, why did we put them in the position of having to ask? And she said, our love for them got in the way of being good parents. I ran my finger around the rim of my glass, but no music came. And I said, I'd be a much better father if I could do it again. You can, she said. Well, I'm not going to have any more kids. I know. And I don't have a time machine. I know. And I don't believe in reincarnation. I know. Do you think we could have made it, I asked, if we tried harder or gone back into things? Made what? Life. We made three lives, she said. But could we have made one? Is that the question, she asked? I said, why not? Making it, not failing. There are more ambitious things to do with life. Are there? I hope so, she said. On the drive to the party, I'd listened to a podcast about asteroids and how unprepared we are for the possibility of one heading toward us. The physicist being interviewed explained why none of the possible contingencies would work. Nuking it would just turn a cosmic cannonball into cosmic buckshot, and the debris would likely reform in a few hours due to gravity. Robotic landers could deflect the asteroid with mounted thrusters if such things existed, which they don't and won't. Similarly implausible would be sending up an enormous spacecraft as a gravity tractor using its own mass to pull the asteroid away from the Earth. So what would we do, the host asked. Probably nuke it, the physicist said. But you just said it would only break it into lots of asteroids that would hit us. That's right. So it wouldn't work. Almost certainly not, the physicist said. But it would be our best hope. Our best hope. The expression didn't awaken anything in me at the time. It took Julia's hope, attaching itself to the other terminal of my mind to jumpstart my sadness. Remember when I smashed the light bulb at our wedding? Are you really asking me that? Well, did you like that moment? That's a funny question, she said. But yes, I did. Me too. I don't even know what it's supposed to symbolize. I'm glad you asked, I said. I knew you would be, she said. So some people think it's to remind us of all the destruction that was necessary to bring us to the moment of our greatest happiness. Some people think it's a kind of prayer. Let us be happy until the shards of this light bulb reassemble. Some people think it's a symbol of fragility. But the interpretation I've never heard is just the most straightforward one. This is what we're like. We're broken individuals committing to what will be a broken union in a broken world. Well, it's less inspiring your way, she said. But it's not, I thought. It's more inspiring my way. I said, there's nothing more whole than a broken heart. Is that Dr. Silvers? That's his therapist. In fact, it's the Kotzker Rebbe listen to you, she said. Yeah, I've been studying with the rabbi who did my grandfather's funeral. Curiosity converted the cat. Meowzeltov, I said. <laughs> How I loved her laugh. I looked at her, at Julia, and in that moment, I knew that we never could have made it. But I also knew that she had been my best hope. 
Isn't it strange, I said, we had 16 years together. They felt like everything when we were in them. But as time passes, they'll account for less and less of our lives. And all of that everything was just a what? A chapter? Well, that's not how I think about it. She tucked her hair behind her ear as I'd seen her do tens of thousands of times. I asked her, why are you crying? Why am I crying? Why aren't you crying? This is life. I'm crying because this is my life. Just as the sound of the scooper going into Argus's dog food used to bring him running from wherever in the house he was, the boys seemed almost telepathically drawn to their mother's tears. Why is everyone crying? Sam asked. Did someone win a gold medal? <laughs> Are you sad? Benji asked me. You don't have to worry about me, I told him. It's okay, Julia said. Just let it be okay. There's nothing more painful than being the center of attention at my wife's wedding, <laughs> save for continuing to think of her as my wife. Are you overjoyed? Max asked, handing Benji the maraschino cherry from his Shirley Temple. No, I said. Are you flabbergasted? Are you cattywampus? Are you diaphanous? I laughed. So what? Sam asked. What? What was the feeling? My feeling. I said, remember when we talked about absolute value for one of your physics homeworks, maybe? Math, Sam said. Right. And do you remember what it is? Distance from zero. I have no idea what you're talking about, Benji said. Julia pulled him onto her lap and said, neither do I. I said, sometimes feelings are like that, not positive, not negative, just a lot. No one had any idea what I was talking about. I didn't know what I was talking about. I wished I could get Dr. Silvers on the phone, put him on speaker, and ask him to explain me to myself and to my family. <laughs> After the divorce, I had a series of brief relationships. I was lucky to have met those women. They were smart and strong and fun and giving. My explanations of what went wrong always came down to an inability to live fully honestly with them. Dr. Silvers pushed me to explore what I meant by full honesty. But he never challenged my reasoning, never suggested that I was self-sabotaging or creating definitions that were impossible to meet. He respected me while feeling sorry for me, or that's what I wanted him to feel. It would be very difficult to live like that, he told me, fully honestly. I know. You would not only open yourself to a great deal of hurt, you'd have to inflict a great deal of hurt. I know. And I don't believe that it would make you happier. I don't either. He swiveled his chair and looked out the window, as he often did when thinking, as if wisdom could only be found in the distance. He swiveled back and said, but if you were to live like that. And then he stopped. He removed his glasses. In my 20 years of knowing him, it was the only time I'd ever seen him remove his glasses. He held the bridge of his nose between his thumb and forefinger. If you were able to live like that, then our work here would be finished. I was never able to live like that. But our work finished a year later when he had a fatal heart attack while jogging. I got a call from one of the therapists who had an office in the same suite. She invited me to come and talk about it, but I didn't want to talk to her. I wanted to talk to him. I felt betrayed. He should have delivered the news of his death. <laughs> and I should have delivered the news of my sadness to the kids. But just as his death precluded Dr. Silvers from sharing his death with me, my sadness kept my sadness from them. The band members had assumed their positions and foregoing any musical foreplay went straight into dancing on the ceiling. The sea bass that was once in front of me no longer was. It must have been taken away. The glass of wine that was once in front of me no longer was. I must have drunk it. The boys ran to the dance floor. I'll slip out, I told Julia. 
When we visited Masada, my father filled his pockets with rocks. And without knowing what he was doing, knowing only my need for his approval, I filled mine. My cousin Shlomo told us to put them back. It was the first time I'd ever heard him say no to any of us. He said if everyone took a rock, Masada would be dispersed across mantles and bookshelves and coffee tables, and there would be no Masada. Even as a boy, I knew that was ridiculous. If anything is permanent, mountains are. I told her, I'll slip out. And I walked to my car beneath a sky clotted with near-earth objects. Somewhere in the wedding guest book are my children's signatures. They developed their handwriting on their own, but I gave them their names. Thank you. Thank you both. A few audience questions. Um, first one, Jonathan's for you. In a recent interview, you said that with this novel, you let the world in more than in your earlier books. What did you mean by that? I can't remember the last time someone mentioned something that I said when I remembered having said it. <laughs> so I know that I have to like, assume responsibility for that statement, but I don't know, I don't know what I meant. Um, I let more of the world in. I think what I meant, or I think what the speaker of that statement meant was um, I used to become very frustrated with the intrusions of the world. And, you know, by the time that I would be at my desk, I would already have been through, like, many days of activity, it felt like, um, like being a parent of young kids and living in New York City. There's just an awful lot of activity and noise and responsibility and negotiating and like self-diminishment. It's just tiring. And um, I remember the feeling of sitting at my desk and saying, I don't have a chance. Like I'm starting this day without a chance. Where on earth would I draw? You know, writing under the absolute best conditions if you were in like, a hut in Hawaii and food was being brought to you and um, e even then it's, it, it would feel probably very close to impossible but when you're starting at such a deficit like a physical deficit of not having had proper sleep and an emotional deficit of having given so much already where would one even get like where would you find the resources that are necessary to do this thing that's almost impossible under the best of circumstances and I guess I changed at a certain point and stopped seeing the world as something to resist. You know, I don't need to wear noise-canceling earphones, um, either literally or metaphorically. And I can let it in. I can let it in. And so this book has an awful lot of argument in it, an awful lot of all kinds of argument, like emotional argument, political argument, sexual argument, psychological argument all kinds of conversation and talking and just, just the noise of life. And it's not to say that I brought things that were around me into the book, because I didn't. There's only two times in my whole life when I've ever consciously brought something from my life into my book, and they're both in this book. One of them was details about having a newborn, 
and just like, what was that name of that cream? And how did the pack and play do that thing? And the stroller. And, and then that, that was really small and almost, almost not worth mentioning. The larger one was trying to remember my grandmother's house, which I then made the house of this patriarch of this family. Um, it was, a, I mean, it, it, you might think of it as being like a quintessentially writerly thing to do, but it was singular for me, like putting my head down and trying to remember and trying to conjure details. And why that would be the one time in my writing life that I have tried to do that, to go into and then to take it and bring it back, is itself a really interesting question, which there isn't time and I'm probably unable to answer anyway, but it has something to do with, I assume it has something to do with memorializing. And um, there's a rabbi in here who gives a eulogy, who gives a, a sermon about what it means to eulogize this generation that's about to disappear. And um, maybe that was my own way of doing it. Robbie, do you have any response to that idea of letting the world in, not letting the world in as, as an artist? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. My problem was sitting back there and thinking, oh my God, I'm behaving like Trump. I'm hovering. <laughs> Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> well, this next one's for you. It says, a, a motif that runs through your new novel is that of the outcast. Satan frowned upon Catholic saints and especially homosexuals. Could you talk about this and the changing perception of outsider status that a younger gay generation is experiencing? Uh, sure, there's a lot, I mean, I think, for me, I'm always interested in writing about, uh, I don't know if it's complete outsiders, but people who are on the margins, let's say. Um, it's what interests me. It, uh, I have trouble belonging, and I have trouble not belonging. Um, so this sort of straddling the two I'm, I'm interested in. Um, uh, and f for me, Satan was the ideal sort of rebel. Uh, I really think he's misunderstood. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, again, he's just this guy who said no. <laughs> so for me, uh, it, the idea of, of you know, he's, he's the outsider, but I'm unsure where to belong. And, and uh, so he is the saint of, of Teenagers, I think he should be the saint of gay men and lesbians and all people who are basically on the margins. They just said no. And what about the next generation of, of, of young gay people? Uh, as a grumpy person, I don't think about them that much. <laughs> well, part of the trouble is, is again, I mean, we've, in the last sort of 20 years, we've witnessed a, the, an absorption of a... Uh, part of the population that was uh, on the outside. And sort of uh, every minority goes through that. You know, uh, I don't know when sort of the Jewish assimilation began to happen, but we're witnessing right now the, the gay assimilation. And that's, I find that fascinating. So that uh, it becomes, we, gay men and lesbians become part of the culture as long as they behave in certain ways. And what I find interesting is that then they begin to discriminate uh, exactly like the 
uh, dominant culture. And it, again, it happens in every minority that, that becomes assimilated. Uh, and I, I'm one of those who I find assimilation in most forms a little, shall we say, difficult. Uh, so it, I've been having trouble, but I had trouble before that, you know. So it just changes whether I'm having trouble assimilating as a gay man or as a, you know, Arab or as a uh, whatever. Like I said, it's, it's easiest when I just become grumpy and I don't have to even <laughs> get off my lawn. Here's one you, for both of you. What do you think about that? Uh, <laughs> one. <laughs> okay, one for both of you. And Jonathan, if, if you'll you go first. Um, it asks, you both tend to frame your novels with history and geopolitics. Do you find that it's impossible to craft your narratives without the past and, and the wider world? I don't know. It's hard to imagine what that means without the past and the wider world. What would that? I mean, really. Let's skip it. Let's go to a. Let's go to a different one. <laughs> Absolutely no offense to the. Uh, Robbie's of the off the hook. This one's. Uh, I think this one's answerable. <laughs> and it says Jonathan's novel has uh, Argus the old dog, and, and Robbie's has Behemoth the black rescue cat. How do you decide whether your characters are dog or cat people? Are you a dog or a cat person? How many questions do you have there? <laughs> we skip right to Bob Dylan winning the Nobel. What's the one after that? Somebody, uh, somebody said that uh, Robbie's An Unnecessary Woman uh, was their favorite book and wrote down a favorite quote that uh, they wanted Robbie to respond to. It's, it's, as follows, and maybe we'll wrap it up with this. It says, I can live inside Alice Monroe's skin, but I can't relate to my own mother. My body is full of sentences and moments, my heart resplendent with lovely turns of phrase, but neither is able to be touched by another. And the person just wanted to hear Robbie talk about that sentiment. Um, uh, uh, Alia, the narrator of, of uh an unnecessary woman is a sort of a special case, but she has, I believe, what all of us have. Uh, but, but I would not say I'm unable to be touched by human interaction. I just find it difficult. Uh, so, you know, as a reader, uh, I'm assuming quite a few people here are readers. Uh, for, it is one way of, of sort of being intimate, which is being intimate with a book. It, it is both lovely and difficult in terms of, you know, actually having relationships, because most of the time I prefer to read a book than date. And if you see the people who I'm dating, then you would agree with me. <laughs> uh, but, but again, it's those, this, this lovely thing where I can actually be, you know, I am so moved by, by reading certain books, and I am rarely moved by people. And again, if you read the people I meet, you might understand why. I think that's a good note to end on. <laughs> Thank you all. They're gonna be signing books next door. Right. Thanks for listening. 
92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92yondemand.org.